I kind of want to minister for a few minutes this morning on the subject uh, that is both foundational, I believe, and structural to the uh, vision of Triumphant Grace Ministries. When this ministry was birthed a few months ago, um, I stood before the church and I conveyed the vision uh, that the Lord had given me. And I know there'll be more that will come down the road. And everything at that time was kind of futuristic. It was just something that would happen as we went along. And we're beginning to see some of those things already uh, happen. Uh, the, the vision encompassed many exciting and wonderful proclamations. But if you recall, I said there was going to be a major emphasis put in the children's ministry. When we birthed this ministry, there was a, um, there was a process. It's kind of like giving birth to a child. There's this process you go through. We had to file with the state uh, for uh, articles of incorporation to be able to secure the name. We had to um, file with the, the federal uh, employer to get a federal employer identification number. We did that. We had to write the constitution and bylaws for the church. We did that. We had to write the corporate policies. We did that. We selected a board for the church, a seven-member board. That was pretty hard to do because there, there wasn't many people here, but God was faithful and allowed us to do that. We had our first board meeting. Uh, we went on to uh, probably the most comprehensive part about birth and a ministry is the, the filing for the 501c3. We did that. We got the 501c3 approved, and so we, we we're in receipt of that now. But as I said before, there's a, an application process uh, called the 1023 application for the 501c3. It's 67 pages long. It's, it's pretty extensive. We followed the, the principle of Habakkuk chapter 2, where it says, write the vision, make it plain, so that they may run with that vision. And so we're in the process of running with this vision right now. <laughs> Amen. But during the, uh, this birthing process, the Holy Spirit was leading me with these two thoughts. And I've, I've conveyed them before, but let me say them again. Change the children, change the culture, change the message, change the man. And when I say about change the message, I'm not talking about change the message that we are preaching, because we're preaching, I believe, the message that Jesus wants us to preach, the message of love and grace. In, in my vocation, in, in terms of what I do for a living, uh, I spend a lot of time on the phone. In fact, all my time is spent on the phone. I sell a product that the company I work for builds and I'm on the phone nationwide. Uh, I make between 40 and 100 phone calls a day. Some conversations are very lengthy, some not so lengthy, but a lot of time on the phone. Most of you probably wouldn't want my job. The job comes with a lot of coarse language. You have to hear a lot of stuff. Just by nature of, of who our customer is, they're kind of the rough, tough guys, you know, and boy, they, it's just rough sometimes. But I have to keep reminding myself, I'm not there to iron out your wrinkles. <laughs> I'm there to sell you this product. And that's just a hard thing for me because the pastor in me wants to go, brother, man, what's, what's going on that you got to talk like that? I have, to, I have to listen to the Lord's name taken in vain many times, sometimes throughout the day. And that's a hard one for me to, to hear. One of the things that, uh, that troubles me about the nation and I'm the kind of guy who I pay attention to things. You know, I mean, uh, as I go, I'm, I'm a guy that engages people. I don't care where I'm at. I always engage. I look, for, I, it just, listen, it's a gift. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a gift to, to try to get people to talk. You know, I want to tell them about Jesus. So you got to get into that conversation first. So I try to engage people everywhere I go. And I have had some of the most amazing conversations about Jesus. I mean, in airports, uh, like I said before, in bathrooms. I mean, everywhere you could think of. I'm engaged people, but at the same time, I'm listening to what is the world saying? I'm, I'm listening to what is the heartbeat of, of this world? 
we've grown up in a society that people just don't keep their word. That just bugs me. (laughs) I, I know we can forget things. And I always tell my colleagues, listen, guys, the shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. You need to bring, you need to bring this because you're going to forget stuff. You've got to write it down. So I understand I give grace for forgetting because I forget things sometimes too. Anything that's very important, I try to write it down because I don't want to forget it. Because, you know, if, if you've heard this saying before, our word is our bond. Have you ever heard that old saying? My word is my bond. There was a time in this country that a, a handshake was more binding than a written contract is today. (laughs) A handshake where you can look a guy in the eye and say, this is what I'm going to do. And they would do it. About 90%, I don't have any documentation, but I I know I'm very close with this number, probably well over 90% of the time when someone says they're going to do something, uh, the people that I'm talking to over the phone, do not do it. Mark, I'm going to call you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. That's 90 out of 100 times people won't do what they said. And I understand about people getting busy, but if you, if you understand that there's this propensity, there's this, this pattern, if you will, that people don't follow through. And so I've, I've, I've said to myself, and I've told my wife about this, honey, that just really bugs me because this is the way our country has become. It's, it's in many cases unthankful. They don't keep their word. And, and, and I'm thinking, God, this culture has got to change. Now, if you don't see that, it's because you're not engaging people. Because if you'll just engage and you'll just listen, I'm telling you, you'll see what I'm seeing. Keep your word. Keep your word. And I was thinking uh, yesterday afternoon about Moses as he led the children out of Egypt. They were all in bondage. He led them out of Egypt and he led them to to Canaan, to the promised land. There were two men that uh, went out with that original bunch by the name of Joshua and Caleb. Do you know out of all those people, now I know there's uh, different stories, how many left, you can hear anywhere from a million to three million up to six million people. There were a lot of people that left Egypt. (laughs) But only two of the original bunch went into Canaan. Only two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua's name literally means Savior. Caleb's name literally means faithful. His name means many things. It means it, it literally, the name Caleb means dog. So, and I thought, Lord, it, this, can't, this can't represent you. But you see, when you think about a dog, a dog is devoted and a dog is faithful. So when you think about the expression, his name literally means faithful. So when I thought about Jesus, Joshua, he's our Savior. Jesus, he is faithful. He is faithful to bring us in to whatever land that we're looking for that's flowing with the blessings and the graces of God. He will be faithful. And here's what it says. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. And then it says in verse 7, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Now, verse 10 says this. It's an amazing thing. And and I've thought about this for years. I've never preached about it. But it said, after that whole generation had had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, after they had all died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's an amazing, that's that's staggering to me. 
that all the stuff, I mean, you've got things to talk about for years and years and years with your kids of everything that happened in the wilderness. But the Bible says after that generation died, there arose up another generation of people that didn't even know the Lord, and they couldn't tell you one thing He did. <laughs> they couldn't tell you one thing He did. You think they got a culture problem? <laughs> they, they got a culture issue going on. Culture literally means the principles, the beliefs, the core values, it refers to the nation. So that's what I was saying. When we, when we put an emphasis on changing the children, you can change your nation. But there's a whole generation of people in this world that we live in that don't know, they don't know God and they don't know the things about God. They don't know what He's done. In fact, we have to open up our mouths to let Him know what He's done for us. That's one thing they cannot argue with is when you just tell them, this is what Jesus has done for me. <laughs> they can argue about everything else. You can give them all the Scripture in the world, and they can say, well, I don't believe that. But when you, when you tell them what Jesus has done for you, they'll stop and listen to you. And that's a good place to begin to share the Gospel. Start with what Jesus has done for you. A generation that didn't know God. Change the message, change the man. Most of the churches worldwide preach what we call a mixture message. In case you haven't heard what the mixture message is, it, I, I used this illustration a while back, but let me kind of redefine it. It's like taking, it's the Old Covenant. We have an Old Covenant, we have a New Covenant. The Old Covenant is just part of the Old Testament. It's not the Old Testament. It's something that's in the Old Testament. We have something called an Old Covenant in there. And what I likened to it before was like two decks of cards. You've got, let's just say the Old Maid. Everybody's played Old Maid. You've got an Old Maid deck of cards here. And then you've got just a standard deck of playing cards here. One represents the Old Covenant, the other one represents the New Covenant. And imagine what happens when you bring them together and, and you shuffle them together and then try to play a friendly game with anybody like Rummy or something like that. They're going to be confused as they start drawing some of the Old Covenant cards, some of the Old Made cards, because they don't go, with, it's not relevant to the game you're playing. That's precisely what we do when we, when we reach back into the Old Testament and we look at the Old Covenant that's, that's sitting there and we try to bring it over into the new believer's life and we try to put it in the heart of the, the new believer under the new covenant and say, hey brother, that's the hand that life has dealt you. You know, you live with that. And you hear this being preached and what it does to you, it, it confuses your mind. You're like, well, one moment I believe this, the next moment I believe that. No, no, we are new covenant people. It's like Jesus said, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the message of grace. He's talking about the new covenant message. He said, if you try to take that new covenant message and just cram it all at one time into an old wineskin, a person who believes uh, based on old covenant, I'm going to tell you, you know what happens? He said, both of those things are going to end up on the ground, <laughs> the skin as well as the wine. It, it's one of these messages that has to seep in, drip by drip by drop. I drip. That's the way it's been for us. It, and, and as we keep saturating ourselves, drip after drip of this new covenant message, this message of grace, I want to tell you something pretty soon. What it does, I, I was telling my wife last night, this grace message is kind of like a wrecking ball. <laughs> it's like when you have this monster building that you've got to take down, and you've got the crane with the wrecking ball, and every time that message of grace swings into it, it swings into it. It takes a piece out of there. It takes a piece out of there. It takes a piece out of there until it, one day it is all gone. That's the message of grace. And so, what happens is, is when you take that new wine, you put it into an old wineskin, both of them end up on the ground. 
my heartbeat for this ministry is when I think about not only the adults and the, and the teenagers that will come, but the little children. They are uh, taking this message, this new wine message of God's love and, and mercy and grace and compassion, and putting it into those little new wineskins. These are fresh little wineskins that have not been indoctrinated and cemented in the ways uh, uh, that are contrary to the message of the gospel. If you're taking the old covenant message and you're trying to live a new covenant life, it's like a Phillips screwdriver with slotted screws. You find yourself just frustrated. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what you find out? They're not compatible. <laughs> They're not compatible. And in Hebrews, it explains it so well. Chapter 8. I love these scriptures. These are scriptures that I would encourage you to, to look uh, at time and time again. Here's what he says. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, let that sink in your heart for a second. God is saying there was something wrong with that first covenant. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. That's a powerful scripture, isn't it? If there had been nothing wrong with the, with the first covenant, there would have been no place sought for another. But God found fault with the people because they couldn't keep the covenant and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Oh, thank God. Happy day. <laughs> it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In other words, what he's saying is it's no longer going to be an external covenant. This is going to be an internal covenant. I'm going to put their laws in their minds. I'm going to write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Boy, if there was a scripture to shout on, that's it right there. <laughs> I'm going to forgive all their wickedness and I'm going to remember their sins. How long? No more. No more. My sins are remembered. No more. Even when I try to bring him up, he doesn't understand. It's like I'm speaking a foreign language. He's like, what are you talking about? I remember your sins no more. Isn't that good news? So the next time, and it doesn't take very long when you hear a message like this, you say, I got it. I got it. But it doesn't take long we start walking through this world for the enemy to try to tell us God remembers our sin. You just say, you take him back to these scriptures in Hebrews chapter 8, and you say, wait a minute. God said... He will remember my sins no more. You know what? Why he's not going to remember your sins anymore? Because of grace, a more excellent way. <laughs> I love that. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Wow. You know, for years and years and years, I don't know how, I've read these, this scripture. I don't know how my eyes glazed over and I, I just didn't see that with the preciousness of it. He made the first covenant obsolete. Obsolete means it's not worth anything. It's no longer in effect. It's no longer binding. It's obsolete. <laughs> he made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, 
On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert in Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up the mountain of God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings. God carried them on eagles' wings? I mean, it's an expression. They didn't literally all leave on the wings of eagles, but God says, listen, I carried you out of there by my precious spirit. I mean, that's a picture of the spirit. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Who did it? I did it. (laughs) I did it. Carried you and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant under the old covenant, it was our responsibility to keep the covenant. The covenant was between God and man. The covenant we're in now, the new covenant, is not between God and men. The covenant is between God and Jesus, and we happen to be a part of Jesus, so we get to come right along. And Jesus is a covenant keeper. (laughs) He's a covenant keeper. This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob. I've carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Oh, I love that word. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Here's the people's response. And they said, listen, we will do this thing, everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. The mentality of do more is systemic in the body of Christ. Our identity is found so much in what we do (laughs) and not in our who. If you're attempting to establish yourself, your identity, in your performance, I have a word for you this morning. It's Old Covenant. It's Old Covenant. Your identity is not wrapped up in servanthood. I'm going to tell you what your identity is wrapped up in. Your identity is wrapped up in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. That's where your identity came from. Your identity is in Jesus Christ alone. That's where your identity comes from. Most of us have grown up with the mixture message, and here's what the mixture message says. Try harder. How many of you have heard that one? How many of you have heard the enemy say that? Just try harder. No. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, he said, rest. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's not try harder. How about pray more earnestly? Is that in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. Pray more earnestly. Pray fervently, the Bible says. But the Bible's talking about from a posture of rest. It's not talking from a posture of trying to please God. It's talking about from a position of rest. How about this one? Repent more frequently. <laughs> repent more frequently. You know, with this word repent, it's just a, it's a million dollar word that's so misunderstood. It literally means, it comes from two Greek words, metanoia. Metanoia. Meta means to change. Noia means the mind. We think repent means to be sorry and to, and, to, and to sob before the Lord and say, God, I'm so sorry. You know what? Listen, when we, when we realize that we're, we're kind of missing the mark, all we do is just change our mind. That's all. You know, I, I heard this several times. I don't remember which astronaut it was, but he said when they shoot for the moon, when they're heading to the moon, every 15 minutes they have to make a course correction. Every 15 minutes. He said, if we don't, even though we're off just by a little bit, he said, by the time we reach the moon, we'll be thousands of miles away. 
We have to make course corrections. And that's all what repent means. It just means to make a course correction. It doesn't have to be with tears. It doesn't have to be with sorrowness. It can come that way. But you know what? Repent just means to change our mind. That's all it means. Now, you know, I've got a little bit of Pentecostal in me, right? <laughs> it probably comes out once in a while. I'm trying to tame it down a little bit today. But I grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church, and sometimes I get excited, and sometimes I start spinning all over the place. This is the one I used to hear preach, and it used to be the one that would convict me years and years ago. It, you know, it almost really, really, not even convict, it'd bring this condemnation upon me. Well, the Bible says, the Bible says, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And I would think, good night. How holy do you have to be? Am I going to miss seeing him? Because I'm, what if I just did something that was kind of less than holy just before he came back? Without holiness, the Bible says no man, and I know the implication that they were trying to preach it in was, was just that. You better live straight and narrow because you never know the day nor the hour. How many times you heard that one preached? The day nor the hour that Jesus might return. And he, when he comes back, he's looking for a church without spot and without wrinkle. Listen, I don't have any spots. I mean, I might have some age spots, but I don't have any spots and wrinkles like the Bible talks about because Jesus has already ironed out my wrinkles. He's taken them. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. I don't have any spots and wrinkles, and neither do you. That's good news, isn't it? Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Let me tell you what that scripture means. You want to know what that scripture means? Holiness is an expression. Holiness is, is love with grace and mercy, and compassion, all the, the, these expressions coming out of you, that looks like holiness to me. And the Bible, when it says, without that holiness, without those expressions flowing out of you, it says, no man shall see the Lord. Literally what it's saying is, nobody that, that meets you will see the Lord in you. It's not talking about, you're not going to see the Lord. <laughs> I've got an eternal position in Christ. I'm going to see the Lord. In fact, I see Him all the time. I see Him in Scripture. I see Him in prayer. You know, I'll tell you what, your prayer life will change if you just quit asking God for a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I would say, and this has been this way for years for me, I would say 98% of my prayer life is thanking Him and loving Him. There's times, yes, I believe we need to ask God. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to ask God for things. But 98% of my prayer life is just loving Him and thanking Him. You know, you, sometimes it's just some of the same things you've been saying for years. Like I say to my wife every day, love you many, many times throughout the day. It doesn't lose its value because I say it every day. It doesn't lose its value with the Lord. And when I, when I just say, Daddy, I love you. I'm, I'm just so crazy about you. I love you. I love spending time with you. Daddy, I'm, I'm here. I'm at your feet, Daddy. I'm with you. You know, I, I love that. Without holiness. So, literally what it means is no other man, no other man is going to see the Lord unless he sees him through you. I can think back and, and I remember even though I didn't accept the Lord as a kid, I can remember in the church seeing some of those saints of God that, man, they loved the Lord and they, they, they made a deep impression in my heart. Uh, six weeks before I gave my heart to Jesus, I went to a Promise Keepers convention. 60,000 men uh, in, at, the, at the Superdome up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Oh, what a time that was. All oh, men, no women were there. It was all guys. It's the way they structured those things. Promise Keepers. Then they had the Promise Reapers for the ladies later on. 
But it was an awesome time, and I saw, I saw the Spirit of God in man after man after man. And it was at that Promise Keepers convention that I felt the Lord calling me to, to, to come to Him and, and be saved. And uh, even though I put it off like a crazy man, it was six weeks later that the Savior was faithful to call me again. Call me again, and I gave my heart to Jesus. What it caused me to do, I think, when I was with that group of guys, there was nine of us that rode up in the van. It caused me to covet what they had. It, I, I desired what they had because I knew my life was empty. I desired what they had, and I knew it was Jesus. But I didn't, you know, I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't sense His goodness because I didn't have Him in my heart at the time. As I was thinking about that, I thought, Lord, is it okay to covet? <laughs> and, and yesterday I, I looked in the Bible, and there's a place in the Bible that God actually tells us to covet. <laughs> and it's not in, under the Old Covenant in uh, Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are written. That's the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. It's not there. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. It's the very last scripture of Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what it says. But covet earnestly the best gifts, the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And when I saw that yesterday, I thought, wow, Lord, that's where the message title came from. God had given me everything before that. I had no title to the message. And I'm thinking, that's it. It says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. This word gifts comes from the Greek word charisma. We say that charisma. It's actually pronounced charisma. It literally means graces. And God is saying, covet earnestly the best graces. And he says, when you covet the best graces, when, you, when that is the message that, that you're looking, that you're feeding on and searching for and conveying with your lips, he says, then I will show you a more excellent way. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Mark, son, see, when we birthed this church, we, we had preached many years before this. We had an arsenal of messages we could have came in and preached. They weren't grace messages, but they would still preach. <laughs> they were faith messages and encouragement messages. We came in here and we said, we are not preaching those messages. We came in here and said, we are going to preach fresh bread to the people. And, we, and since we've come here, every single thing we've preached has been that same week that God has given us. This is fresh bread for you. So it's not some canned sermon that we've preached somewhere else. This is fresh bread. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, Mark, because you have desired, because your wife has desired graces, the graces of the Lord, you've desired that above everything, I have showed you a more excellent way to live, and I have showed you a more excellent way to preach, I've showed you a more excellent way to minister, and I've come by this morning to tell you, if you'll do the same thing, what He's done for us, He will do for you. Desire earnestly the graces a more excellent way. That's been the revelation for us. And then what's interesting is when he ends the, the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians with that verse, he steps over into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What do we know that chapter as? The love chapter. And he goes on to tell you, he says, hey, listen, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, he said, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. They are just annoying. He said, though I give my body to be burned, he said, it profiteth nothing. Though I do this and that, he said, it profits nothing. But he, he explains what love looks like. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. Love is not envious. Love keeps no records of wrong. I've preached on that recently. I love that one. Love 
love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always delights in the truth. That's what he was getting at when he said, desire these graces. What are these graces? These graces are to love people wherever you go. I know it's hard to do. It's hard to love sometimes. But it says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord without the expressions of God's holiness flowing out of you. And that's what grace does is it changes what people see in you. My daddy died in 1994, the year before I got saved. My daddy died. He died in West Virginia. Most of his children, there were six of us that came. There were a few that couldn't make it. Came down to North Carolina. There was a woman that opened up her home for us to come and stay there. And we were there for a few days. Her name was Joni. We got through that. I came home. A year and a half later, in August of 1995, is when I gave my heart to Jesus. The following May, now it's been more than two years since we've been down there. The following May, the Holy Spirit one night said, Call Joni. I'm like, wow, that's God. I called up Joni. She answered the phone. Is there any? <laughs> she, called, she answered the phone. We made small talk for a little while, and then I said, Joni, and I began to allow the graces of God to flow out of me, the love, the compassion, uh, the, the non-judgmental stuff. And for two and a half hours, I talked to Joni about Jesus. She didn't make a decision that night. But a week later, I got a, a, a letter in the mail from Joni. And in that letter, she said, Mark, thank you for telling me about Jesus last week when you called me. She said, after we got off the phone, she said, I went and dug my Bible out of the attic. And here I will quote her what she said. She said, and now I'm walking with God. I read that letter and I said, where's my phone? I got to call Joni. I called up Joni. I said, Joni, did you give your heart to Jesus? She said, yes, Mark, I gave my heart to Jesus. Oh, I'm so happy. And she went on to tell me about it. I was just thrilled what Joni had did. Why did that happen? Because the graces, the more excellent way was flowing out of me. It was Jesus, of course, but he was flowing through me into Joni. Two weeks later, I got another phone call from Joni. She was crying. One of my brothers and my sister-in-law and their little boy lived about 30 minutes from Joni. They were on their way to Joni's house when an 18-year-old boy who broke up with his girlfriend decided to get in their lane and, and hit him head on at 55 miles an hour. All of them were transported to the hospital. All my family, my brother, his wife Chrissy, little bitty thing, all of 100 pounds, 21 years of age. She was med-flighted to the hospital. So Joni was telling me about this. I said, Joni, I, so we began to pray on the phone. I said, you keep me informed. The next morning, I, I received another phone call from Joni. She was absolutely weeping uncontrollably. She said, Mark, I just went in to see Chrissy. She's in bad shape. She said, Mark, for starters, her head looks like the size of a basketball. And here's what I said to her. This is two weeks after she gave her heart to Jesus. I said one word, and I said, Joni? And she said, I know, Mark. i got to get in there and tell her about Jesus, don't I? I thought, you've been saved for two weeks? You know, those new disciples make the, the best preachers, don't they? They've not been contaminated yet. 
She said, I know, I got to get in there and tell her about Jesus. And I said, thank God. Yes, Joni, you do. She called me back. She said she walked into the room and there was Chrissy, totally in a coma, six months pregnant. They were prepping Chrissy to take her upstairs to take that baby. She was in bad shape. Joni said she walked over to Chrissy. I love this thing about Southern people. They don't ask you to do anything. They just tell you. <laughs> she just walked over to Chrissy and she said, Chrissy, you need to accept Jesus in your heart right now. And she said that Chrissy began to move around on the, on the bed and all the sirens began to go off in the room and she said a nurse, which was on the other side of the room, walked over to her and said, I don't know what you said to this young girl, but whatever you just said to her, she totally understood what you said. A tear rolled out of Chris, Chrissy's eye, one eye and down her face, and she died shortly after that. Friends, I want to tell you something today. It's the graces. It's the more excellent way. It's when you, see, I had no idea that night when the Holy Spirit was prompting me to call Joni. I had no idea she would get saved. I had no idea that ultimately my sister-in-law would enter eternity. It could have went the other direction. You got to listen to God. He's the grace man. He will send you into places, desert places with a grace message. It's the most excellent way. To change the man, you have to change the message. To change the culture, you got to change the children. This church must establish the believer's heart, is what I'm saying, and the, in the children's heart, in the unambiguous message of grace. In the unambiguous message of justification and righteousness. And we, with clarity, must proliferate the uncompromised message of the gospel, the good news, the good news that Jesus Christ loves you, the unconditional message of His eternal love, and it begins with our children. Having said all that, unfortunately, there is a present and rising generation, especially young people in this world, that have never heard the message of eternal security. They've never heard it. I have encountered people, and I've, and I've quoted John 3.16. You would think everybody would know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There are people that have never heard that message in the United States of America, that come from fine homes in the other, any other way. They've never heard that. They've never heard about God's amazing grace. And I, I asked the question uh, to the Lord. I said, why have they not heard this message? What's been the single, I said, Lord, what has been the single greatest contributor to camouflage in the gospel, to hiding this good news message? What has been the single greatest contributor? If I was to ask you that question, I believe everybody in here would probably have a different answer, and that's okay. But here's what the Lord said to me. I'm going to give you 10 statistics very, very quickly here, and you tell me if you can see the common thread between this. 63% of youth suicides in America are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children in the United States of America are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That comes from the center of disease control. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 
70% of youth in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of youth that are in prison today come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all teenage pregnancies lack the father in the home. 90% of adolescent repeat arsonists Repeat arson, people that are setting fires. Why are they setting fires? Why are they getting pregnant? Why are they going to jail? Because they're angry. There's no daddy in the home. They've never seen the goodness of a good daddy. 64 million fathers in America. 64 million. Only 26 million of those fathers are in the home with their children. That's alarming. That is alarming. I know this is a tough message to swallow, but you need to hear these things sometimes. That's a tough thing to swallow. 26.5 million fathers in the home. Now, take the fathers that are there. Not every father is a good daddy. Some are abusive to their children. Some are neglectful. Some run off for a while and then come back. Some are not faithful. It whittles it down to where you can see there's about 100 million children in the United States of America that have a father fracture. And I'll tell you something. If you were the enemy and you wanted to destroy the world, what would you go after? You go after the richest thing we've got, which is father. Because here's the deal. If, if my earthly daddy didn't treat me right, if my earthly dad was mean to me, if my earthly daddy was absentee, that's the way I'm going to think about the heavenly father. So don't tell me. And listen, I've been down this road before. I have talked to scores of people and they would say, don't tell me about how good he is. And I look at them and I'll say, was your daddy in the home growing up? No. Well, what's that got to do with anything? You, you can just tell there's this major father fracture. And what I've said here is I don't want to see our children continue to go through that. And so I want to point them at a loving father through grace and love and mercy. That is the message, friends. That is grace, a more excellent way. Do you see the devastating effect that it's had on our children? <laughs> it, it, it's tore them up. In order to change, change the culture, we have to change the way that people see not only their fathers, but how they see Father God. We've got we to change the way that people see each other. We've got to change the way people see themselves. And only the message of grace, a more excellent way to, to live, does that. We've got to teach our children and our people through the lenses of grace. And when we project this healthy image of a good daddy, a daddy that's not mad at us, a daddy that's uh, not disappointed with us. A daddy that just says, doesn't just say, get out of my way. A daddy that's just not out to get us. He's a daddy that loves us. My daddy loves me. I want to tell you something. That's why my walk with the Lord is a healthy walk with the Lord. Is because I'm getting this better picture and better image all the time. He's getting closer to me and closer to me. And I can see how good my daddy is. I want to tell the whole world how good my daddy is. And I just might do it. <laughs> Here's what I felt uh, the Lord say in my heart. The investment in this ministry is far too great to leave no legacy. The investment in this ministry is far too great to leave no inheritance, to leave no birthright for our children and for our country. And when I look at the, the people that are gathered together today here, I know you're believers. I know it's already a finished work for you. It's already been done. God's already done a great work in you. But there's people out there that have never heard of this finished work. They don't know anything about the cross. They don't know anything about our good daddy. Yesterday morning at, at quarter after six in the morning, as I'm just meditating on the Lord, I got a phone call. 
by a person that I spent 30, 35 minutes with on the phone. They've called us on many occasions. They always think that because of what they did, the Spirit of God left them. And I, I keep telling them, no, that's not possible. It's not possible. But there's this mindset. I said, you, you, you've got to change the infrastructure in your mind. It's not possible. And sometimes I just get passionate about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking with a loud voice. No, that's not possible. It's impossible. And so right then I was looking at these scriptures uh, that I'm, I'm about to close with. And so I began to minister these scriptures to them. And I say, now what do you do with these scriptures? Just Let's just take a look at just a few scriptures. Tell me what you do with this. Romans chapter 8. I know we've talked about these scriptures before. Beginning at verse 35. Who? It asks this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us? And that word who literally includes every man, includes you. You can't separate yourself. Like my wife said before in a message, you, you don't belong to yourself. You can't give yourself away. You belong to Him. He owns you. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That word who means who, what, when, where, why, and how. It encompasses all those amazing words. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Where can we ever be separated from the love of Christ? Why could we ever, you know, when could we ever, how could we ever? It's an amazing question that he's asking. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? <laughs> and then he goes on to list seven, I'm going to call them forces. Because I believe these are forces. Seven forces, he says, that cannot do it. And the first one he says, he says, tribulation can't do it. Tribulation cannot separate you from the love of Christ. I think about what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri. I'm that guy that preaches much of the stuff in the news. But I think about what's going on down there. Friends, that is the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. That kind of tribulation, those kind of tribulant neighborhoods, that kind of tribulation cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Isn't that good news? Oh, that's good news. I, I, that's so good it's coming out of my pockets. <laughs> that's good news. Tribulation can't separate us from the love of Christ. He says distress. Distress is calamity. It's just when you're walking through life and you get this calamity, it's what robs us of our peace. You know, it's the, it's the opposite of peace. And he's saying, listen, even when you walk through life and you're, and you're not feeling a peace, it, it's no, this is the situation I, I deal with sometimes when I minister to people. Well, I just don't feel the peace of God. So what? <laughs> Saturate yourself in His Word. That peace will come back. It doesn't matter what you feel. This relationship with Jesus is not based upon how you feel. Sometimes I don't feel peace. <laughs> it doesn't take very long to to get that peace working back in my heart. So, he said, tribulation can't do it. Distress can't do it. Persecution cannot do it. We see this crazy bunch of people called ISIS running like crazy folks, wanting to kill everything that doesn't look like, sound like, breathe like, smell like them. You know what? Listen, just pray for those people that the message of grace would show up and the message of God's goodness would be preached. It's the only hope they've got. It's the only hope we've got. But I'm going to tell you something, that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. He said it can't do it. He says famine can't do it. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. I'll, I'll just, this is a crazy thought that popped in my head. We probably have more french fries underneath our seat in our car than most people have to eat in, in, in this world, in third world countries. They wish they had the scraps laying underneath the seat of our car. 
But when I thought about this with a famine, there are people that have a refrigerator and a pantry full of food, but they've got a famine on the inside. They're hungry. They're hungry for this message of God's love and His mercy and His grace. And there's this famine, there's this emptiness that keeps gnawing away on the inside of them. And, and, and he says, listen, even if you're a believer and you feel like there's a famine on the inside, you're hungry. He said, even when you feel like that, you are still not separated from the love of Christ. Anybody ever felt empty? I'm not just talking about hunger. You ever felt empty in life? Yes. <laughs> you felt empty. You felt dry. You felt like you needed a good long drink of cold water in the spirit realm I'm talking about. You felt like you just needed something to sink your teeth in to fill you up. I'm telling you, when you feel that way, it is not an evidence that you are separated from the love of Christ. He said, because famine cannot do it. Oh, that's good news. Famine can't do it. Then he says, nakedness can't do it. When you feel unprotected, and that's what nakedness is, when you feel unprotected and you feel ashamed, he said, listen, even when you feel unprotected, it can't do it. So many people blame God when things happen. They blame God. Listen, I'm not, I don't beat people up for blaming God. My, my brother Tim, who is one year younger than me, if you've seen me, you've seen Tim. He's just a much bigger version of me. Big guy. We look a lot alike. My brother Tim has not let God off the hook since his 21-year-old wife was killed and his baby. He's not let him off the hook because it's, God could have protected her. God could have saved her. God could have protected her, Mark. Tell me about this loving God that you know, and this happened to me. Friends, I don't always have the right words. I, I really don't. I just say, listen, our situations that we go through do not negate the love of God for us. But he's saying here, nakedness can't do it. Peril can't do it, just dangerous situations. And he says a sword can't do it. Now, I want to I say something about the sword. The sword is not meant for show and tell. It's not meant for a piece just to hang above your mantle. A sword is meant for cutting. It's meant for dismembering. It's meant for taking lives. That's what a sword was designed for. And he said a sword can't do it. And there's so many people that have been cut deep. Deep, deep, deep in their heart. Sometimes it happened when they were a little child or when they were growing up. They were cut deep in their heart. They were sliced. They were wounded. And God says, even when you're walking through all that woundedness and all that hurt and all that pain and all that cut, you're still not separated from my, the love of Christ. That's seven amazing forces. And then the Apostle Paul takes a break. He takes a little breather. In verse 37, he kind of looks like he's going a different direction, but he says, wait a minute. <laughs> In verse 38, he says, seven, that just wasn't enough. Let me give you ten more. And then he starts off that 38th verse, for I am persuaded. I am persuaded. It literally means I am convinced. He said, I've established this thought, this belief system. He says, listen, I am assured, I am convinced, I'm trusting in this word that I got from the Holy Spirit. And it literally means I have yielded. Or the expression of it literally says, I have made friends with this truth. Here's the truth he said I've made friends with. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. That's a lot of forces, isn't it? First one he deals with is death, because that is one of the human being's greatest fears, is death. And he says, listen, it doesn't matter if you die, you cannot be separated from me. 
He said, it doesn't matter if you live. You can go out and you can live like a crazy man if you want to. I don't choose to, to want to do that. If I want to go live like a crazy man, I can do it. Life can't do it. I can go have, be the life of a party somewhere. Listen, he's saying life, no matter what, anything in life, it cannot separate you from my love. And then he says, angels can't do it. And principalities and powers can't do it. What he's saying is, the forces of light can't do it. The forces of darkness can't do it. There's no force on earth that can separate you from my love. And then he says, hey, things present can't do it. Just look around. See, do you see everything? <laughs> Everything's present, right? He said, nothing you see can separate you from my love. He says, you know what? Just in case your mind is running ahead and you think, well, there might be something in the future. No. He says things present can't do it and things to come can't do it either. So I'm going to cover all the bases. <laughs> so you don't think some new thing came along that they didn't cover. Nothing can separate you from my love. And then he, he, he goes on to say height can't do it and depth can't do it. And I love what David said. David said, if I ascend to the heavens, he said, you're with me. You are there. He said, but if I make my bed in hell, he said, guess what? I find you're still with me. A lot of people make their bed in hell. But you know what? God said, I'm still with you because nothing can separate me or you from each other. I'm persuaded, he says that. And by the way, I don't know what these creatures are. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure what the creatures are. They probably look like those little mucus men on, on the commercial. I don't know what they are exactly. But he says, listen, no creature. I don't care what it looks like, how ugly. Creatures are usually ugly things, you know. That's why they call them creatures. They're just ugly, scary things. He said, listen, all the ugly, scary things of life, like your past, <laughs> cannot separate you from my love. Nothing can separate you from my love. The message of grace builds a new infrastructure in our hearts. That's what grace does. Grace is a more excellent way. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful message of grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You made it so plain in your word. Father, I'm asking you to cause the people of this world that have not seen this message, this message of your love, your, the beauty of your grace, I'm asking you to, to remove the scales off of their eyes and off of their ears, unstop their ears so that they might be able to hear this message of your goodness. Because it's that message. It's that message of grace. And I just declare with boldness, with boldness, Lord Jesus, they will stand and declare, grace is a more excellent way. In Jesus' name. Amen.